welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, as is often pointed out by alumni of the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's tombstone declares his foundation of that university as his third great achievement, but does not mention his presidency of the United States. Jefferson had a vision of what a great university could and should be, and the political talent and allies to see that vision implemented. That vision was an intimate part of his Republican political philosophy and of his hopes and fears for the fate of the Republic in whose creation he had participated. As Andrew O'Shaughnessy writes in his new book, The Illimitable Freedom of the Human Mind, Thomas Jefferson's Idea of a University, acknowledging that his ideas were utopian, Jefferson regarded himself as an idealist who wanted to benefit humankind, improve society, and offer a happier life. Andrew O'Shaughnessy is Vice President of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello and the Saunders Director of the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies. His most recent book was The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, the American Revolution, and the Fate of Empire, which was awarded the George Washington Book Prize. Andrew O'Shaughnessy, welcome to Historically Thinking. Hello, uh, Alan. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me onto your show. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're on your patch. We're in the right next to your office in the Center for Jefferson Studies and sort of on uh, my, well, our mutual patch yes. of early Virginia. And mm-hmm. I promise I, 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 I don't indulge in my own patch or my own, pa- in my own historical passions all that much mm-hmm. on the podcast. Um, this is not a podcast about the revolution or early national America, but this time I, I'm prepared to dive in, uh, but to avoid, as I said to you in the email, avoid talking about things like um, the Reverend James Murray's, the particulars of his theology, yes. or Charles Fenton Mercer's <laughs> political philosophy, so and various other obscure Virginia politicians who were extremely important at the time, uh, back when many of the best politicians tended to stay in the state legislatures, but we'll leave all that aside. So let's talk about Thomas Jefferson and his early life. Um, in many ways, um, you sort of confirm what I've always suspected, that so much of the design of the University of Virginia is based on Thomas Jefferson's early learning. I did not say education. I said what he actually learned, what he took out of his education. So you could describe his early education and his learning from, you know, from his childhood, as best we know it. Well, a central component of his vision was the idea of a university as a community uh, with professors almost playing a paternal role. And this was reflected in his own early uh, education. Uh, The College of William and Mary was especially important. And the one lay professor on the faculty, uh, William Small, who uh, was Scottish and had uh, encountered the uh, Scottish Enlightenment um, and you know, exposed Jefferson to the sciences uh, and to really a very broad education. But more importantly, he introduced him to his friends, George Wythe, who would become the first professor of law at, uh, in, in America, mm-hmm. at the College of William and Mary, and Francis Fakia, the uh, governor. And they would have musical evenings and intellectual 
evenings together, and he regarded that really as uh, what he would most like to attain in his university, the sort of mixture of conversation, social gathering, uh, and intellectual dialogue. Yeah, so you um, mm. have, uh, there's some correspondence that you cite between mm. little, I mean, to go back to our list of obscure Virginia politicians, mm. Littleton uh, Taswell, Littleton Waller Taswell. Yes. Whose father was, whose grandfather mm. uh, educated him uh, very well and then sent him to George Wythe when he mm. was like 12 to learn mm. Hebrew and Greek. Mm. Um, but he, what he describes from Wythe and what St. George Tucker uh, described, who's I think with successor as prof mm. a professor of law at William Mary, mm. is this deep, um, deep studying in Wythe's parlor, very, a very Oxfordian, uh, Oxbridge model. Yes. Going to his tutor yes. study. Mm. Um, uh, even though with had no connection to Oxbridge that I, mm. uh, that anyone's aware of, um, but it was very, it was very much a lived where the, prof the teacher is also a, um, is paideia. They, they mm. are, they are something that the, the student is, the, stu the student is studying the teacher yes. as well as the subject. Mm. And that seems to, and Jefferson seems to have wanted to, from the very beginning to create that possibility in a future college. The, it's amazing how early this begins, though. Yes. Um, there's, what's the first year that he begins his ideas of, of educational reform and establishing a new kind of college? Uh, so it really begins in 1779. I argue in the book that, in, in a way, he was intellectually disposed to do this. Why, why do you think that? Um, just the breadth of his interest and his love of teaching others. Yeah. Uh, that, that was one discovery to me, uh, although I've seen it mentioned many times, but I'd never really reflected on the way that he would invite um, uh, young people uh, sometimes to come and stay with him. Mm -hmm. He'd give them reading lists and would yeah. uh, very meet much, with them. Yes. Very much what Wythe would do. For yes. People, even if he wasn't teaching them law, like mm -hmm. he would just, they would just stay with him and, and tutor him. But I've noticed that too. Here's Jefferson, even after he mm -hmm. stops practicing law, after he, mm -hmm. he hated practicing law, right? I mean, apparently, mm -hmm. but he's still teaching people law. Yes. People still read law with him. It, it remains the most basic subject, but he was a great believer that to study law, you had to have a, a broader background and spend at least three years reading another subject areas, which is interesting because there are many universities today which will only teach law as a graduate mm -hmm. degree. And the, his idea rather reflects that. Yeah. Uh, but his first uh, actual attempt to uh, for educational reform was in 1779 during the American Revolution. The, the date is remarkable because Benedict Arnold uh, and the British are beginning their raids on the coast of Virginia. Um, it would only be a couple of years later that Cornwallis was actually invading Virginia. And uh, it's interesting how Jefferson was still thinking of the post-war society and how to make it better. And uh, I really argue throughout this book that um, while he may have been predisposed to creating a university and an education system, much like Franklin, mm -hmm. even if the, uh, the, the state had remained 
part of British America. It's the American Revolution that really gives the impetus to uh, introduce education reforms. And they're very remarkable because it consists uh, partly of proposing a public school system in Virginia, which would have been the first anywhere in the world. Uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Scotland came very close to uh, having very high levels of schooling, but nowhere had a systematic public school system, not even Prussia, which... uh, and issued diktats that it was going to do that. But, but never it's not until the early yeah. 19th century that it appears. You, uh, you made me reread that proposal, mm. that bill. Yes. Uh, actually, maybe read the proposal. Mm. I don't think yes. I've ever... You always see it mentioned. You say, oh, yes, okay. Mm. But the level of detail in yes. that bill, as you say, is quite mm. remarkable. So I've always I've known about the... Mm. You know, we have the lower schools, and then we have grammar schools for, mm. what, every four counties? Yes, I always thought this was like a theory, but he actually specifies which counties. Yes. He gives instructions of how the uh, the lower schools, how the school districts are to be divided. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he specifies uh, how they shall live in the second, in the grammar schools. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the final step is, is the college. And what mm-hmm. we've got here is what I hadn't realized what Hannah Arendt thought was Jefferson's most brilliant political idea, really... Um, linked to his idea of schools is his idea linked to what he calls hundreds or districts. He, what yes. does he calls them wards? That's, that's, true. that's right. I and mean, today we would probably think of them as just counties. Yeah. But, um, Townships he he deliberately them, uses the word hundred yeah. and then later ward republics. Yeah. It's based on the Anglo-Saxon idea of grassroots, as he thought, democracy mm-hmm. at uh, inflated idea of the Anglo-Saxons, but uh, this sort of self-government and a recognition that uh, in order to really involve people in government, you had to concede political power at very low levels. So today he's always quoted as state rights, but even within the states, (laughs) these little uh, ward republics were going to have rights as well. They're responsible for a school and a militia company. Yes. Very symmetrical. Yes. Um, uh, for peace and uh, peace and war, mm-hmm. uh, it's quite remarkable vision, and you mm-hmm. can see. I started to see it already at that point where mm-hmm. where you were kind of driving the argument. This is interlocked with his ideas of freedom of religion. Yes. Because this is really coming as someone who knows something about Anglicanism in 18th century Virginia. This is his replacement for the parish, mm-hmm. which are always which are the sub governments in each Virginia county, mm-hmm. but which are irregular which are ungovernable by church vestries. They're just too big. Um, so here's something rational, sensible, geographically bounded, but which will education, which will occupy the most essential features of Jefferson, a Jeffersonian Republic. It's, mm. and that links with freedom of religion. Mm. It links with his basic ideas on primogeniture. Mm-hmm. It links, this is all part of his larger Republican program for Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an article from, gosh, in the 80s, Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth, about uh, Jefferson and ingra- Jefferson's ingratitude to William and Mary, written by a <laughs> William and Mary professor. <laughs> uh, he must have read it. At some but in 1779 is the beginning of this period of his expressed disenchantment with William and Mary, which is that it's un- understanding the disenchantment is important to understanding his enchantment with what becomes UVA. Mm-hmm. What does he, how does he try to change William and Mary, mm-hmm. and, and why does he eventually give up? 
So I, we mentioned he puts forward a bill for a public school system in 1779 known as the Bill for the General Diffusion of Knowledge. The same year, though, he also puts a bill to reform William and Mary. It's quite interesting because it was a private college at the time. Yeah. But there was no sense in any of these quasi non governmental kind of. <laughs> that they could and would interfere. I mean, in uh, Massachusetts, they were doing the same with Harvard. Yeah. And uh, he, his reforms uh, would basically have secularized William and Mary, which had started as a college really to train Anglican priests. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was going to remove Department of Theology, uh, remove the languages like Hebrew thought so necessary, and the classics in order to introduce more um, science. Uh, it, it seemed to me that he was thinking of William and Mary as the future University of Virginia. Uh, and um, But this bill never passed. And he was able to make a few changes by getting on the Board of Visitors, but they were not nearly enough as far as he was uh, concerned. And uh, my sense is that, although others have pointed to the indiscipline among the students and quality of faculty, that his real concern was that it was a private university that was only amenable to so much government intervention, and that it was also uh, still, in a way, a religious Mm -hmm. establishment, um, although not as closely allied to the Episcopalian church as it had been to the Anglican church, but uh, he could never remove that. And you very rightly said he saw religious freedom and political freedom as necessary for intellectual freedom. Yeah. He was almost obsessed with this idea. We'll, we'll get to that in a little yes. bit, because this, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. one of his most interesting, mm-hmm. longest-running obsessions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, he, it's interesting the many other things he has to say. Like mm-hmm. I hadn't come across the quote. He refers to Williamsburg as Devilsburg. Yes. Um, and he intimates that, you know, if it hadn't been for his strength mm-hmm. of character when he was a student, he could have gotten up into all sorts of trouble. Yes. Um, of course, by that time, by the 1780s, Williamsburg is now suddenly transformed into a backwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his point, of course, it's deeply unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Well, many, So many of his arguments are related to health. Um, yeah, that's very important. And of course, it seems very sensible now. Yes. And we're very aware of epidemics. Uh, and that, that was uh, something that did happen at the University of Virginia soon after his death, a typhoid yeah. epidemic. Uh, but healthiness, centrality, so that people from all over the state, so location was terribly important to him. But there was also this sort of overweening pride that it should be something as good as anything in Europe and Mm -hmm. America, and that Virginia should be the host to the top university. And he even disapproved of it architecturally, which I've always found bizarre. But he hated the idea of one big... Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a little second. There's another one of his interesting obsessions. Yes. Um, I so some uh, one one question for you. Do you think um, I've seen it suggested, and I always kind of went along with this. Um, I, maybe when I maybe I was too 
maybe I was too anti-Jeffersonian. <laughs> um, maybe I'm changing. But he, uh, do you think he soft-pedaled Washington? Washington had a passion, not equally great, but great for a national university. Yes. Do you think that Jefferson soft-pedaled that or diverted Washington away from that course? Uh, because, with like, for example, the plan of the universe, the University of Geneva was on the lamb. It was, it was wanting to leave uh, revolutionary Europe. And there was a suggestion that it should move over to the States. And Washington thought, fantastic, nothing better for my, my city named after myself uh, yeah. than to have this new national university with the best professors in Europe. But Jefferson, among others, sort of diverts that from happening. Is this in order because he sees a national university as a threat to the University of Virginia? Well, I mean, he does pay lip service to it. And when he hears that the University of Geneva, which had been one of the great universities, was basically being shut down by revolt, he yeah. would suggest to Washington, why not just buy yeah. the faculty of the University of Virginia, no, Geneva, Geneva yeah. and bring them to uh, Washington? So he, he doesn't totally oppose it, but he does give us a sort of pretext that he thinks it's constitutionally problematic. He's mm -hmm. a strict constructionist that you know, the Constitution doesn't allow for the government to create a university. But then doesn't he try to get them to move to Richmond instead? Yes, he does, um, which suggests <laughs> that he, he really felt that that was very important, yeah. uh, that it be in Virginia. Frank Cogliano has a book coming out comparing Washington and Jefferson. His argument is Washington is much more of a nationalist with a national vision, which I think fair enough. But I think there is more to it. And some people, of course, have suggested that he wanted it in Virginia because he wanted a university which would preserve slavery. Yes, which which is, we're, we're getting to that. Yes. Um, but the real reason is that Virtually all the colleges in America uh, were firstly religious. Mm -hmm. Chapel was required uh, twice a day, and a large proportion under the control of Presbyterians, who he distrusted, mm -hmm. uh, not least because their main base was in the north of the country, and many of them were... Uh, you know, members of the Federalists. And not just uh, members, party. but almost yeah. like ward bosses yes. and patronage chiefs of the Federalist Party. As mm. you make very clear, you often hear this idea that universities mm. are, have always been centers mm. of radical discontent in society. Mm. This is not true. No. It is not true. And if you get far to find a better example than the bitter internecine political struggles of the 1790s and 1800s, mm. uh, in which Harvard, well, Yale is run by uh, Dwight is 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 a power within the Federalist Party uh, because and also within Yale's position within Connecticut um, mm. and moreover uh, and so is Princeton mm. and Yale and Princeton are the most successful at replicating themselves mm. at the time right with yes, lots lots correct. of Presbyterian congregational colleges mm. which are proliferating from Jefferson's perspective with an alarming rapidity um, so. You know, I have to say that my mind was really changed by reading your book because I would have, I've given tours in the last five years in which I, as a take friends out of town and I would take them around the lawn at UVA uh, and, and basically draw attention to uh, Jefferson's uh, retransformation into a Virginian and, and sort of becoming a Southerner. But I don't buy that now at all. Mm -hmm. um, so 
what you're what you're arguing first of all is he had this argue, he had this idea of a university for 41 years prior to the Missouri Compromise. If yeah. we're going to go with that, yes. the alarm bell yes. tonight. We'll get to that in a second. He had it for 35, 36 years prior to beginning work on his machinations towards create the university. And so the question why this old man, it's so urgent for him to create this university, is he wants to save a Republican vision. Yes. I I think it's hugely significant, and this I don't think has ever been pointed out, that he puts forward the plan for a new University of Virginia in 1800 in a letter to Joseph Priestley. And uh, this is the year of the most bruising political election that most candidates have ever suffered. And he was especially hurt that some of his greatest critics were northern clerics, and not least clergy who ran the great universities in the north. Uh, the worst culprit was Timothy, Timothy Dwight. Dwight at Yale. Mm-hmm. And, it, was, uh, it was sort of co-governor of Connecticut with Jonathan Trumbull Jr. Yes. I mean, it's essentially. It's and, a, and that position basically almost made him leader of the Presbyterian Church in terms of any formal hierarchy, mm-hmm. uh, certainly the most influential Yes, the Pope, the Pope of New England, I think. That's so, right. They call him. And uh, he was saying during this election, you'll be forced to sing the French Revolutionary songs. That's right. (laughs) And that, um, uh, you know, everyone will be turned into atheists. And he actually tells his students the following year uh, to pledge not to ever vote for Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And this is hugely concerning to Jefferson, who believes that the achievements of the American Revolution and the principles of 1776 were in danger of being lost to the Federalists. Uh, he believed only he and the Republican Party would preserve the true values and that they would turn America back into being a monarchical And like so many presidents, he was country. already worried about the next election. Yes. <laughs> Even <laughs> in 1801. Yes. <laughs> so, so this is his instantiation of yes. his Republican philosophy. Yes, very much so. But as it's interesting. He gives a number of different reasons over time for education mm-hmm. and what he thinks is important. Uh, perhaps the most developed is his blueprint for the university called the Rockfish Gap mm-hmm. Commission in 1818. And uh, there's no doubt one of his prime uh, aims was indeed political uh, to create a Republican university and a university that would train an elite who would put aside self-interest for the public good. But he recognized that that in itself was always going to be dangerous to depend on, which is why you also needed an educated citizenry in public education in order that you had an electorate who would hold the government uh, accountable. So the his bill of 1779, the very elaborate bill for uh, uh, schools, uh, elementary grammar, and uh, and for college reform, that's failed uh, twice while he was in France too. It, it failed three times. It failed three times. And you know, a lot of his critics today say, "Oh, he sacrificed schools for this elitist project of the university." Uh, he never wavered from saying that schools were more important. If, you're, if you have to choose between training an elite and training the population, it's better to have 
the schools. The reason he could never get it passed was he insisted the schools be secular. And indeed, he was so obsessive, as a word we've used earlier, that he didn't even want clergy teaching the schools. Yeah. He wanted to exclude them. So hmm. when does he begin? This is a very convoluted story. We're just hmm. going to skate over the top yes. of the water. Hmm. But it is a, you know, I've, another change of mind <laughs> is that you often have the idea that Jefferson is the idealist. He's too pure for politics. He's above the fret. James Madison is the mm. ward boss. Mm. Jefferson is sending him directives from Monticello while mm. Jimmy Madison pulls the strings. But what you see, uh, beginning, I think, 1814, when he starts in earnest, you yeah. see a masterful, yes. pol- sort of practical politician. Mm. The person that any, any history department would want as their chair, <laughs> because he's smarter and tougher than the dean, and he mm. writes all his mm. minutes himself. Mm. He, Sir Humphrey Appleby would love him. Yes. I mean, so could you describe a little bit how he wheel, how he wheels and deals? It's quite remarkable. I mean, for I mean, up until his death, he's wheeling and dealing, first to create the university, mm. and then to keep on, pr- pr- make sure it survives. This was the greatest revelation to me, to yeah. look at him at the height of his political skills, and to see this one project in which he has a vision and then he implements it in detail against extraordinary opposition, mm-hmm. not least from uh, the Presbyterians in Virginia and uh, lo- other locations that wanted to uh, house the mm-hmm. University of uh, Virginia. Um, I cannot actually think of the head of state of any other country in the world <laughs> who has, has ever spent so long thinking and devising a university. And the, you spent the, some time doing that, I'm sure. <laughs> the idea was so creative and so cohesive. Uh, but just to give you one example of his yeah. political skills, uh, I, he was able to calculate every brick needed for each building. Um, but that's, he, just, that's just talking about obsessive. But, that's that's obsessive. Yeah. But someone uh, went to see him and asked him, "So, you know, why uh, are the, do you always underestimate the cost of these buildings? Uh, and why didn't you just give the cost at one time instead of staggering it?" Um, and Jefferson apparently laughed, and unfortunately, this then got into the to his great embarrassment and said, well, you can't stuff more than one loaded hot potato down a man's throat. <laughs> I mean, actually, uh, it was sometimes quite mischievous what he was doing. I mean, remember, he managed to get, I mean, I can't think of a more expensive um, build, series of buildings other than Washington, D.C. and the Erie yeah. Canal in you, say that, you say that the, t- the three mm. biggest public works projects of the time yeah. were the Erie Canal, mm. basically the Capitol, and mm. the University of Virginia, which is, puts it in perspective. And the bill is passed in the middle of one of Virginia's worst financial crises in history, 1819, a, a, a depression which incidentally accelerates Jefferson's own bankruptcy uh, but the fact that the state, he managed to persuade them to give this he, extraordinary amount of money. He did it through mm. um, basically getting a hold of this idea that Albemarle mm. Acad- uh, Academy, 
Yes. Creating an elaborate plan for it, which shows mm. that he was already mm. thinking of taking this small school, mm. private school, and just making it into something else. Mm. Steers that briefly into something called Central College. Yes. And then eventually the bill for the University of Virginia, all mm. through masterly use of writing the minutes himself, mm. um, keeping a track on all the details. Yeah. And a bunch of really talented young men who mm. are all actually making his argument for him mm. in the legislature. Yeah, he was very good at using other people to do the all dirty work. work. And Joseph Cabell, who Cabell, who at times was coughing blood, he was so <laughs> sick. Uh, uh, he, he played the James Madison role that Madison had played in Congress in the 1790s. He was the yeah. front man. Um, uh, and... and and Jefferson shames him into staying to argue the thing, even though he's coughing up blood. Uh, it's amazing. Also, the, sorry, the manipulation, the way that he uses emotional uh, manipulation on John Hartwell Koch um, yes. and all these people to like keep them their hand to the plow. It's yes. really quite something. It's really uh, a remarkable uh, study in leadership. Okay. So let's talk. Let's now talk about the Missouri crisis mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah, I've heard you give a talk about this before the, the recent unpleasantness, I think right before, um, about the, um, the lack of link, which I had always had in my head, between the Missouri crisis and the university and the founding of the university. So this is, this is the increasingly, as I'm reading the book, um, slavery is one of the most important things in Jefferson's life. It's in a context without which it's impossible to understand it. And yet... Um, it increasingly seems he's, while he's working on it, he's having several children by a woman he owns at, yes. at the time. Um, and yet it doesn't seem, I find less and less now, it, it, in your argument, I'm less and less persuaded that slavery is at the center of his concerns for university. university. And I guess that's your intention. That is your argument. It, it absolutely is. Not least, um, you know, the university... Uh, issued a report as a slavery commission, yeah. and it, it was very important and a vital corrective to the way we had been thinking about the history of the university. And I use a lot of its material and insights yeah. in my book. I mean, I mean, it's extremely helpful, but nevertheless, it was polemical in parts and made claims beyond uh, what, what are valid. In fact, I really likened it in my own mind to the 1619 report of almost the same time. This was a vital corrective, but it wasn't contextualized um, and it overstated. So the report basically said that Jefferson founded the university to protect and expand slavery. And the footnote was one letter he'd written during uh, the uh, Missouri crisis uh, to a federalist named Brockenbrow. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Missouri crisis, of course, was the great first really great crisis of the Union over the issue of slavery and whether Missouri be admitted as a slave state or a free state. Uh, the problem, though, with using that as a footnote is that the university was mostly built by this point. And as you said uh, earlier, you know, he'd been thinking about doing this for 41 years. Uh, and he, he talks about sort of pernicious effects of Southerners going to Northern universities. And people 
presume mm-hmm. that he's talking about being uh, influ- you know, influenced by abolitionists. And the, he's the, speaking about Presbyterians. That's much, for, that, much worse than abolitionists. That's right. The point is, it's a bad argument because Northern universities were not anti-slavery. Uh, it was the evangelicals we have to thank. Uh, ironically, the people who Jefferson didn't like, he, he was very worried they'd come under control of Federalists and uh, Presbyterians. The Federalists uh, had almost died out as a party after the War of 1812, but he, he was somewhat like um, Americans in the 1960s seeing reds under the beds all the time. You know, yeah. He felt they'd changed their colors, but they were yeah. still there. He has some really elaborate conspiracy. <laughs> yes, yes. And then to that, he's a true revolutionary. Yeah. He never gives up the rhetoric. No, because he because they're yes. actually monarchists, not federalists. Yes. And the monarchists, they just, you know, and Tories are loyalists. And they yes. just, they've just gone back into their rat holes mm. from which they'll emerge again. Um, and that's that's the point. That's your point about the Brockenborough letter. Yeah, uh, what he was really trying to do was get money <laughs> and persuade him to vote for the university, which needed yet another huge input of sums for the largest remaining building, the Rotunda, which is really the jewel in the architectural crown of the uh, university. And so he's using the Missouri. Crisis. He stops uh, worrying about the Missouri crisis once he's got the money for that. Yeah, he uh, doesn't mention tower. it again. Yeah. And in order also to make this argument, it means you're just not taking Jefferson's anti-slavery views very seriously, which has been the tradition of uh, late. Um, yeah, well, I, but, have, I haven't taken them very seriously until you're mm-hmm. making me rethink that. Yeah. Um, so what are his anti-slavery views? And sh- surely they would all disappeared by the 1790s. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he might have said some things. You know, he mm-hmm. represented a free black in, what, mm-hmm. 1769. He had some other things in 1770. His, his famous, uh, his, the, the thing that he publishes in 1774, he has some anti-slavery things. Yes. Of course, that language comes is... Even the Declaration of Independence. That language comes in the no, Declaration. No, no, that's no cut. state of Virginia. The point is, he's one of the earliest to speak out against slavery. I mean, he recognizes this as a moral problem, regardless of whether he does anything or not. Uh, he actually does take action. He tried to pass something called the Western Ordinance that preceded the Northwest Ordinance, which would have banned the expansion of slavery. And that would have been huge. It would have been both the Northwest and Southwest. And it only failed by one vote. Uh, and the I fact is... Talk that about it, a one-eth of American history. That's, that's one yes. that one never talks about. I mean, remember the Civil War was about the expansion yeah. of slavery, not the continued existence of it in the yeah. South. Uh, at least that was the pretext uh, among Republicans. And uh, he does talk about it less later, uh, but he also talks about religion less <laughs> later. Uh, the fact is, it's a bit like the difference between 1968 uh, and the 1980s. Uh, you know, in revolutionary periods, you can float ideas, speak openly, and be assured of positive response. There'd been something of a counter-revolution in American society and become much more evangelical in the early 19th century. Uh, an opinion had really started to harden in the South. Uh, in other words, uh, 
in order to continue his political career, uh, he could not uh, speak out against that without completely undermining his base. But the point is, in private correspondence, he remained opposed. I do say that his ideas for the abolition of slavery become bankrupt Mm -hmm. uh, because they're predicated on the idea that Southerners are somehow going to change their views. And I think he hoped that future trained generations would help do exactly uh, that. Yeah, I mean, his mm. utopian hopes are based then on deeper mm. utopian hopes. Yes. Rather than, uh, this is not a Washingtonian mm. view of the universe or of, the, no. of, of mm. political necessity. Um, let's go back. We'll return to that probably in a mm. second. But let's talk about the academical village. Um, mm. You've kind of alluded to this already, but it struck me that this is a, tr- uh, that this is a tremendously uh, expensive project, as we've said. Mm-hmm. Um, why does he have to do it in this way? Mm-hmm. I kept, I wrote that in the margin. He keeps on having to do it in this way. And from the first plan for, as I said, from uh, the Albemarle Academy, if not before, he's stuck on doing it in this mm-hmm. way, which we now admire as one of the great, you know, achievements in the history of American architecture. Yeah. And a model of, of our campus design um, in ways makes makes it very different from any European model. Um, but why in this way? Well, I mean, he's very grandiose in his visions. I think about Monticello. Yeah. Uh, and I, despite, of course, wanting to begin the world anew, he was always looking to Europe and always competitive with Europe. Uh, and so one of his proudest boasts is that this university would compete visually and aesthetically with virtually any university in Europe. It it was so important to him. And if it was going to be a great institution that attracted top professors, and he's one of the first to really be concerned with uh, uh, attracting star faculty, Mm -hmm. uh, he he felt that you needed such a place and... uh, environment. But of course, it is part of his extravagance that he showed in his private life uh, Mm -hmm. and in his public life and his desire um, to improve the arts in the country, especially. He was was embarrassed by William and Mary, even though actually the Wren building is very attractive. Uh, It had to be a village of buildings to create more of a community. He did not want one large central Yes, building that exactly. looked like it's a hospital. Um, and I'm afraid, I, I, I don't think you say this directly, but my suspicion is now is that if he had built, mm. if he had done a normal business plan <laughs> and mm. built the rotunda first mm. and with two pavilions, they mm. would have stopped there. They yeah. would have not funded the rest. Absolutely. I, yeah. yeah. So he had to give them the whole package. And he starts with, now it makes sense. He starts with the pavilion seven. It's right in the middle of the place. It makes no sense to start with pavilion seven. But as long as you have started there, then people say, well, we have to build the rest now. You have to build out from that. You can't just leave it looking like that. It's just a house in the middle of nowhere. Eh? Um, so he, he, it's part of, it seems to be part of his political tactics as well, as well as having an aesthetic, an aesthetic sensibility, which he insists upon. And the fact is it has influenced architecture throughout the States. The, the, surprisingly, the universities here, a lot of them are a lot more attractive than in Europe. The Europeans still 
much like the high schools here, mm-hmm. have buildings that look like aircraft hangars. Yeah. Uh, they have no... Uh, and there's a lot of evidence that people are inspired uh, and feel better surrounded by good architecture. Well, there certainly mm-hmm. is his idea. Um, yes. Back to mm-hmm. the influence of slavery then, is that the is the university now has a really impressive new memorial uh, mm-hmm. to the enslaved mm-hmm. who were involved in the history of the, of the, of the university, um, who built it. Yeah. Um, there are a few, the white foremen, people mm-hmm. who had basically, Jefferson had trained as architects mm-hmm. um, and builders up at Monticello by uh, working for him. But then we've got hundred, how many hundreds and hundreds of workers? I mean, the, the um, Maury McInnes and uh, Lewis Nelson have suggested about 200 people mm-hmm. were on site at any one time after the university had been built. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't offer um, numbers for the actual building of the university, which in fact seemed quite small <laughs> from those that I've seen. Yeah, I was uh, struck by that too. Uh, that... Um, you know, you had uh, enslaved labor making the bricks uh, and doing some of the skilled work. Of course, there were white workers, skilled white workers. Uh, none of these uh, enslaved workers belonged to the university, uh, yeah. unlike Georgetown and uh, the College of South Carolina, what became the University of North South Carolina. Um, Which is very they didn't own. Very it was curious. always by contract yeah. third parties. That's, I mean, this I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, mm-hmm. but this tells us also something about the changing state of slavery in, in yes. Virginia, yes. especially right here, mm-hmm. where there's an immense surplus of mm-hmm. of, of enslaved labor, mm-hmm. um, and this is why Virginia is going to grow wealthy mm-hmm. is from mm-hmm. shipping them to Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. But I think it's John Zaborny's book on slave hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the there's no need for the university to own people. They can just hire the surplus from everywhere, everyone around them. And so it's not surprising then that uh, you look at the memorial where you don't always know the names of the people that are involved. Um, it's because they show up in hiring records, you know, hired one, you know, Negro uh, from so-and-so and for so, such and such, and that's it. Uh, um, let's talk about professors. Uh, it was a foreign invasion. In fact, there was a British invasion of Richmond. Yes. Um, where did he find professors? How did he locate them? And uh, how good were they? So my uh, impression's always been they weren't that great. And it, it's often thought he never tried to hire anyone in America. He did, in fact, make offers uh, within the United States. Uh, but he s- said, I'm not going to have uh, the sort of refuse of America's universities. And he either wanted the very best, like George Tickner at Harvard, who was their star professor. He either wanted to steal them, yeah. or uh, he wanted to attract some of the best minds in Europe. And his ideas were very ambitious. He even tried to uh, hire the Attorney General of the United States to be the law professor, um, but, uh, and he always insisted the law professor and politics professor must be American. But uh, of the eight professors uh, at the university, only one was actually American born. 
and uh, five had been recruited in Britain, one of whom was German. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he actually sent a recruitment person over to uh, Britain uh, with authority to go to Europe if necessary uh, to find the professors. He preferred the British because of the, the no language mm-hmm. problems. Uh, and you know, they, they also looked at uh, Scotland. Um, but uh, th- this caused a lot of opposition, both mm-hmm. locally and nationally. Northern newspapers ran articles denouncing it. Uh, and John Adams said, I, you know, I th- just think you're wrong. And the, there are plenty of good people in America. Um, but Jefferson's argument was that if you recruit a top-rate faculty, it makes up for all those lost years uh, of having an earlier foundation. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how he managed to get this university up to speed very quickly. Was- Even the library, he wrote out the list of books for the library. It became overnight the second largest college library in America. Yeah, and and, and soon mm-hmm. the faculty was by the large. Wasn't the faculty the largest too? I mean, it was it was amazingly large. No, faculty. Uh, Harvard was the largest, and he at the end of his career he thought Harvard was the best university in America. Whereas in the seventeen nineties, was University of Pennsylvania, huh. um, Harvard had twenty, uh, and he only had eight. His original plan was to have ten, which is yes, why there right. are ten. Yeah. Pavilions, these very large size buildings that would house the faculty at the well, university. That gets to a theory I've often had, and I wish I had suggested to, to run this by you before, but um, I've always been struck by the size of those pavilions. Yes. Even though I learned from your, uh, from your book that the wives of the professors thought they were not designed for domestic use. Yes. Um, but the size of the pavilions is quite striking, given the mm-hmm. size of the rest mm-hmm. of domestic vernacular architecture in mm-hmm. Virginia. The only thing they really compare to are what we could call prodigy houses. I mean, these yeah. are they, they are they compare you know, as big as Monticello, but they are in effect closer to Monticello than anything else around here, which are one, two, three chamber you know houses, and that's and that's for well off free whites have a if they're lucky have a three chamber house. These are much grander, and I wonder if he wasn't trying to solve a. A social problem that could only occur in Virginia is what's the status of a professor? Um, the status of a professor is obviously it's better than that of a clergyman. Uh, and the status of clergyman in 18th century Virginia is a greatly debated topic. You know, are they genteel? Are they gentry? If they're gentry, what kind of gentry are there? Jefferson with those pavilions is making a statement about who a professor is in Virginia society. That, that I think that's an excellent observation. Uh, he also paid them the highest salaries yes. outside of Harvard. Uh, and uh, I was very concerned uh, that this should be an attractive opposition. The idea of an academic or professor and the profession of university teachers really was not developed. No. So some of these people had no former teaching experience. Uh, they made little distinction between high schools and universities. That was very typical at times. Huh. Words like school, academy, college, university you, you were always cite, used interchangeably. Yeah, you yeah. cite your old tutor, Jeremy Cato. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. listening to his lectures on the University of Oxford, yes. uh, going to, to attend them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, 
it's actually a very sensible system in Oxbridge in some ways up until the 1870s. Yes. You uh, have charismatic young geniuses, the best of their class, mm-hmm. are recruited to be fellows. Mm-hmm. Um, they're brisk, bright, and they can, you know, they can uh, very good in the wick, uh, defending the wicket too, um, probably maybe rugby football when they, that comes up. And they're inspirational. And then they get married and move to a rectory somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then if they continue their scholarship, uh, maybe they become a dean of a cathedral, and then they get eventually promoted to be a professor at Oxford or Cambridge. And that was sort of that was the sort of cycle. There's always a cycle of these young men who are then going off to obviously, and that's obviously impossible in Jefferson's view because he's against that. He can't have the religious, so he has to kind of create a new clerisy. Yeah. He has to create a, a, a Coleridgean clerisy of, of intellectuals who are going to do this as they would religion, as they would a priestly task. Yes. Here we uh, are now. It, it's <laughs> the irony that uh, we would not have universities, um, at least in their current form, but for religions. Yeah. Uh, and the language we use, the words like dean and the provost, mm-hmm. uh, even uh, the architecture of the university, the wearing of robes, yeah. uh, the degree ceremony, uh, yeah. these all uh, can be found their origins largely in the Catholic yeah. uh, the Church. Catholic, yeah, it's, mm. all, it's all medieval Catholicism yes. sort of adumbrated through you mm. know, a lot of stuff. Mm. And, but Jefferson has to change some of that language and those sort of forms yes. and to, to find out new uses for him and mm. his vision of a... a, a agnostic public Republican university. Um, what happened to these professors? Did they, I mean, and they weren't used to the idea of being, staying on as a professor. So a lot of them have very short careers here of the first, of the yes. first eight. And most of them do stay one way or another in teaching. Yes. Um, in fact, several of them do spend, spend their life at the University of uh, Virginia, they're only retiring almost in the 1840s and okay. 50s before the Civil War. Uh, and that, of course, is even more true of their successors. Uh, there are two who left after just two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, um, he'd recruited them from Cambridge University in England. And they returned to teach in England at the first college established outside of Oxford, yeah. Cambridge University College, London. It's uh, fascinating to see the link between UVA and, U- and University College. Yeah. And I think that UVA was um, an influence. Huh. Uh, they, the concept behind both was almost exactly the same, secular yeah. institutions that have religious freedom and give emphasis to the sciences. Uh, um, and uh, you know, some went on to greater careers Elsewhere, Robley Dunglinson mm-hmm. uh, goes up, ironically, to teach at Jefferson College at the University of, uh, in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Philadelphia, and becomes one of the leading medical figures in the country. Yeah. And I really tried to stress the academic contribution of the university and the outstanding quality of this yeah. faculty and their work. Uh, one of them wrote the first science fiction yeah. novel, uh, uh, George Tucker in America, and the, the, virtually the first biography of Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. No, it's really a much more impressive faculty than I realized. Yes. Um, let's talk about, speaking of impressive, um, 
or less impressive or something, let's talk about students. Mm -hmm. So another part of my potted tour of the lawn for friends from away mm -hmm. is um, that the groups of, the first groups of Virginia students were all idle, frivolous, slave-owning, violent cavaliers, and it all resulted in the professor being murdered in 1840, and we can't have that. When people get a taste for that, it could happen more often. Um, you make the case that um, that's not necessarily so. Um, so I thought that was which yes. one of your more audacious. Well, <laughs> it's a caricature, and yeah. like many caricatures, it contains they, they a did, large element. They did truth. murder a professor, which is very bad. Yes. And they should did, not be done. They murdered one the same year at Yale, which was good to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and in fact, Yale students even murdered townspeople. They did, uh, but um, they. Uh, and there was a lot of drinking, a lot of gambling. Uh, but this is where actually reading a book about history, uh, how to put this, other than the history of the United States, yes. which American historians should consider doing sometimes, uh, is very helpful, comparative university studies. And, uh, and it's, so it's, what, what I show is that Harvard in the same period was much more riotous than the University of Virginia. Actually, Virginians... Uh, Almost reveled. They, they in loved this. It. They loved this wild yeah. reputation, uh, and so loved to write books just about the riots. Yeah. Uh, and then it's taken on a more sinister hue as people have linked it to slavery and the entitlement that went to slavery. The significance of comparing it to Harvard was that Harvard students were not slave owners, and almost entirely came from. Massachusetts, fact, mainly from Boston. Boston. It's amazing yeah. that they're very few. Eighty percent came mm. from Boston. Yes, uh, or within the Boston region mm. of Massachusetts. That's <laughs> otherwise they had to go to Amherst or you know or or something. So it's really quite extraordinary to see that. And of course, German universities aren't that great either. No, I uh, mean this is I mean, well, was, those were the top universities of the period. Yeah. Uh, but they're infamous for, I, mean, I think they're really the origins of modern American fraternities uh, and uh, the dueling culture in Germany, yeah. the drinking culture. Uh, there was, of course, another side of student uh, unrest in Germany, which was political. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, it was these very frivolous. I always say that uh, you know the hero of these students at the University of Virginia and elsewhere in America was Lord Byron, yeah. you know, the yeah, radical poet, yeah. writer, and romantic, uh, uh -huh. much like Che Guevara was yeah. so popular in America. On he was right around going the to the Greek dying in the Greek 70s. Revolution. Yeah. Um, and the fact is, Jefferson said there are three types of students in this university. The top third are excellent. Uh, the sort of middle who, who are solid, and then the third... Uh, Category said were idle ramblers without the ability to uh, focus. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, rather remarkable that uh, the students chose the, the most popular subject was mathematics. Yeah. This does not suggest <laughs> people that were wild. Um, a lot of doing professional degrees. Um, the average age of the students was older, even though they began at 16, older than in many other colleges uh, in America. And a lot of these colleges were basically just teaching high school age yeah. people. Uh, well, you could, I mean, as long as you could translate the Bible and 
well, mm. Greek, if you get yes. into Harvard, John mm. Trumbull, mm. the artist, could have gotten in when he was 12 mm. because he was that good at mm. translations, but it was realized he was too young. So these are these are much older than that. And there's people that we think about, Edgar Allan Poe, who mm. actually turns out to be probably a better student than I realized. Yes. Um, but then there's also um, uh, what's Henry Tutwiler, who is a mm. revelation, who goes on to basically be one of the founders of the University of Alabama, an mm. abolitionist, that, so mm. he didn't last long in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then founded a successful, a profitable uh, school, co-educational mm-hmm. school in Alabama. Yes. So you find in your book, you find people like that as, mm-hmm. as well as Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, he was a marvelous example because Jefferson's argument was, my generation will one day be considered like witch burners, mm-hmm. yeah. just as our predecessors. Yeah. And that the whole point of the university was to bring about improvement and... Uh, a better society and that he insisted each generation needs to be able to rethink the future and shouldn't be held by what he called as the dead hand of the past, by which he meant tradition uh, that wasn't based on reason and thought. Um, And so he wanted people like uh, Tuckweiler who would go on to do things that he himself may never have envisaged. I mean, he was not particularly forward-looking in terms of the teaching of women. Uh, possibly that was partly because he wanted the university to have real political mm-hmm. influence and women were excluded from politics. He certainly gave his own daughters and granddaughters an excellent yeah. education and took them seriously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's finish up with um, another you argue another thing against contrary to what I had assumed was that the, you know, I've always thought the university of Virginia was sui generis. Um, there was a book by two alumni on about 10 years ago. You, you know the one I mean, but they made really these claims about how every modern American university takes after the university of Virginia. And I, I think I might've, you know, read a review or picked it up and said to myself, no, they didn't. And then just forgot about that. Um, but you make, the case that it has institutional children and um, they occur in some really interesting ways. For, for one thing, I, as a freshman, lived in Sylvester House at the Johns Hopkins University and was delighted to find out that Sylvester had taught at the University of Virginia for three months before getting into a fight with a sword with a student and left back for England. But still, there was a way in which there's, a, there's, a, there's a one small connection between UVA and Johns Hopkins. Uh, but there are some other connections, uh, like MIT, which I had no idea. Yeah, the former faculty was its first president uh, and introduced many of the traditions of the University of uh, Virginia. It's always very difficult. And also to, a dome. It's always very difficult to demonstrate influence because obviously anyone like Jefferson themselves is influenced by a number of places and mm-hmm. factors, but I'm able to... Uh, detail uh, the impact of the university on the University of Michigan, MIT, Harvard, uh, University of Texas, Austin. Herbert Baxter Adams made the claim that uh, actually was influential throughout the South. The the most influential idea, which was not entirely his, it was borrowed from uh, revolutionary France uh, and to a degree from Germany, um, and had been tried first at William and Mary at the University of North Carolina, but was really popularized by Jefferson's University of Virginia, 
was the idea of an elective curriculum where students chose their own subjects. This has become a hallmark of American education. So, so contrary today. to say yeah. British education that it's it's like talking about how yellow has weight to talk yes. about electives at Oxford or yes. at any of the British universities. Mm. Um, what um, I, I, I would uh, what was the influence in Harvard? I was I was struck. So that there were four of Harvard's. Um, greatest presidents who uh, took a specific interest in what Jefferson had done. Uh, the first was soon after Jefferson died. Incidentally, one of the reasons it, it influenced Harvard was two of Harvard's best young professors uh, visited Jefferson a couple of times uh, while he was building the University of Virginia. This was George Tickner and Edward Everett. Uh, Edward Everett actually wrote an anonymous report on the university that again helped to popularize its um, ideas. Um, of course, they were also exposed to the German universities, so the, the influence was going several ways. They were telling Jefferson what was why Germany was suddenly mm -hmm. had some of the best universities. They were well ahead of their time. It had been another 30 or 40 years before Americans started to go in any numbers over to study in Germany. Um, and uh, Josiah Quincy, when he became president of Harvard in 1829, uh, before he even took office, he tried to travel down here to uh, look at the University of Virginia. And ironically, uh, he was prevented uh, and had to turn back at Washington when he discovered there was a typhoid epidemic <laughs> and the university was in lockdown. Something that sounds very... <laughs> contemporary, uh, but uh, Charles Eliot, you know, these were not just presidents for Harvard, but the deep, uh, these are the big reforming presidents. Big reformers. Conant in the 1960s mm -hmm. did a 50s, book, yeah. 50s, yes, did a book on uh, Jefferson's ideas of uh, education. Hmm. And of course, people like and Herbert Baxter Adams was one of the first of the professors at Johns Hopkins University, which is often regarded as the first research university, which is a bit dramatic as research had been developing at other universities, but nevertheless, it was a very consciously yeah. uh, a research laboratory. And, um, uh, you know, that uh, that was uh, where it derived influence. Well, I, mm. I hesitate to conclude mm. at such mistaken mm. and quite, you know, vicious mm. calumny uh, mm. towards uh, my alma mater. But I will, mm. anyway, thank you. Uh, I will. Uh, Andrew O'Shaughnessy, thank you mm. so much mm. for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Al. It's a pleasure to be with you. Just a brief reminder. If you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.